Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today... We are going to be talking about the 1978 gothic horror adaptation of Beauty and the Beast, or Pana Anetvor, the uh, the Czech version by the director Juraj Hertz. Uh, Rob, I think this is only the second adaptation I've ever seen of the Beauty and the Beast tale. The original being the Disney Beauty and the Beast, which uh, just mm-hmm. a couple of years ago I watched for the first time since childhood, and I thought, oh, surprisingly good or i don't know if it should be surprising i, I don't know i i haven't revisited the uh, disney movies as much uh, as an adult as as many other people i know but uh, i was impressed and you know what uh, i'd say two for two this one's really good too yeah yeah um i like you i haven't seen a ton of beauty and the beast adaptations it's a story i'm, I'm very familiar with and certainly the the disney um animated film from what was it 91 mm-hmm. that, that one that one cast a long shadow i mean that's one that a lot of us grew up with um and i, I would never say that was like my favorite disney musical uh, of all time but it's pretty solid and uh, as as we'll discuss perhaps in a bit here, like even the Disney version has some nice additions to this story. Uh, I should go ahead, go ahead and mention just as long as we're talking about Beauty and the Beast in general, uh, the French novelist Jean Marie Le Prince de Beaumont, uh, who lived seventeen eleven through seventeen eighty, uh, wrote the best known version of Beauty and the Beast, which itself was an abridged telling based on an earlier version and other earlier versions of it. Her version of the tale greatly streamlined things. For instance, uh, one of the, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the previous versions of the story had, a, had the merchant widower's children numbering something like 12. She cut that down to, to six, three sons and three <laughs> daughters. Um, so she, she did a lot of uh, economic trimming uh, to the story. So a lot of 
the versions, uh, the cinematic versions then um, of Beauty and the Beast uh, stem from her novelization. Okay, well, this version trims it down even more because this has a merchant widower with three daughters, uh, one of which is the the protagonist of the story, uh, Julie, in this rendering. But I guess that would be equivalent to uh, Belle in the Disney version. But I think it's funny that the Disney one pairs it down even more. Just one daughter, from what I recall, right? She doesn't have any sisters, does she? I don't think she does. Yeah, that 1991 animated film, Robbie Benson voiced the Beast. One of the great things that 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 film added to the story was adding the Gaston character, the, Ah. um, you know, the the overly masculine uh, competitor for Belle's affections that ultimately becomes the proper villain of the piece. And that's something that I think, you know, looking at some of these other adaptations, I mean, that's kind of missing. Like the the beast begins as sort of the antagonist, but then is this uh, more complicated figure at the center of the story. Uh, Gaston, uh, besides adding some additional comic flair and, uh, you know, a really solid musical number, um, he, he provides that villain, a proper foil for the beast uh, in, the, in the latter portions of the film. I remember thinking upon rewatching it, it was kind of interesting that like uh, uh, that uh, Gaston and the Beast were both um, two stereotypical ways that uh, that sort of men can go wrong. And the difference was that the Beast was able to change and Gaston was not. That's right. Yeah. Now, I haven't seen the 2017 live action adaptation of the Disney musical, but Dan Stevens plays the, the Beast in that one. You know, the other big change in the Disney one is that they make the father, I think, an inventor instead of a merchant. So in both cases, he's kind of uh, both these movies I've seen, he's kind of bumbling. But uh, whereas in the Disney one, he's making like a, a oh, I don't know, a, a, like a wood chopping machine or something. He's trying <laughs> to build robots. And uh, in this movie, he's just losing lots and lots of money with terrible business deals. Yeah, I forgot about the inventor <laughs> twist in the, uh, the the Disney animated version. That is a really good one. But uh, Pana Netvor, or the the Czech Beauty and the Beast, has a, a lot of wonderful, unique charms of its own. And I would say one of them is the vision of the beast. Now, like I said, I haven't seen uh, more than, than two of these beast adaptations. Uh, but this one, I think, may have the most unique beast design of any of them. Yeah, absolutely. And should we go ahead and spoil what the beast looks like? Um or should we we save that? Let's save it for when we discuss the plot. We can we can reveal it at the same time it happens uh, in the chronology. All right. But we'll go ahead and just mention in pet. We're not going to do a complete uh, analysis of all the different adaptations of Beauty and the Beast over the years. But I wanted to touch on some of them, in large part, just to focus on how the Beast is visually realized. And one of the key ones here, and this is this is a, a highly regarded film that I'm, I guess I'm, I'm slightly embarrassed to say that I've never seen, is the 1946 adaptation from uh, uh, Jean Coteau. This is the um, this is the, the black and white Beauty and the Beast, and I think that one of the reasons I've never watched it is I'm always a little um, distracted by how the beast looks on like the cover art because the beast, he, lo- he, he looks impressive. I'm not saying it looks shabby. It looks like a, you know, werewolf sort of uh, effect, a wolfman effect, but also he's in just very frilly clothing. He looks kind of like a pampered dog in a fancy outfit. <laughs> he looks like a, like a soft, friendly, friendly buddy. He's, he's kind of a cotton <laughs> ball. He, he looks also a bit like the cowardly lion from wizard of Oz. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. There is a cowardly lion feel to this as well. Uh, but again, this is a highly regarded film. It's a, it's considered a, a classic. So I'm I'm not, and I haven't seen it, so I can't really say any more about it. So, but I just want to say that I'm not trashing this film. I just have not seen it. And for some reason or another, the appearance of the beast has always kind of prevented me from watching it. Well, he's got whiskers, so I think that makes him look like the the lion. But also the the way the fangs come out over the bottom lip, like they are producing a fanged overbite, but it's like the fangs are not long enough to look scary, so instead they look kind of cute. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's just it, it's kind of hard to put a finger on, but for some reason uh, this has always given me pause. All right, so I'm going to be jumping around in time here on some of these, but the other adaptation I was excited to acknowledge was one that I I was not even, I don't think I was even aware of this, but I noticed that Michael Weldon mentioned it in one of his um, psychotronic guides. And there are several weird things coming together here. Uh, So Shelley Duvall's fairy tale theater was apparently a show (laughs) in the mid 1980s. Pause. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't remember this being on. I don't know where this aired. I don't know at what how Shelley Duvall became the face of this, if this was like a European show and then Shelley Duvall became the host uh, when it was aired in America. And why Shelley Duvall? Like, why is she sort of the storyteller or crypt keeper of fairy tale theater? Wait, I said pause. Okay, I'm trying to look this up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, there's no way I can catch up on this. This is okay. This is a revelation. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this with me. All right, uh, so I, I'm, I'm only going to focus on one episode of it because one episode of it was Beauty and the Beast from 1984. First of all, it was directed by Roger Vadim, who directed Barbarella and mm. such films as Spirits of the Dead. And, oh, the beauty is played by Susan Sarandon. Okay. Um, Angelica Houston is apparently in it as well, though I couldn't find any stills of her, so I'm not sure if that is uh, like a crediting error or if she does, in fact, have a role in it. But Susan Sarandon, at least, is beauty. And then The Beast is played by Klaus Kinski. Ooh. Yeah. Which um, I've I've watched a few sequences from this, and I've got some stills here for you, Joe. They seem to very much... um, go after that 1946 feel with the beast because again it looks like a hairy wolfman type creature with a lot of uh frilly costuming but also a very uh permed hair quality to the beast's head this is a hair metal beast like he yeah. he could have been in cinderella yeah the, and yet, the band, not the story. <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, this beast does look frightening. Like the Kinskiness um, certainly shines through. And I'm, I'm afraid of the monster. Likewise, the, uh, the footage that I pulled up and then also stills you can find of Kinski at the end of the film, when he's been transformed back into a human prince, equally, if not more frightening. Because here he is standing next to Susan Sarandon. Everything's supposed to be blissful and beautiful. But this is clearly Klaus Kinski. And yes. I'm just, A, I'm not used to seeing Klaus Kinski as anything other than an actual monster or just a monstrous character. And here he is as this uh, you know glowing prince. And I'm just not buying it for a second. Like, get away from him, Susan Sarandon. Exactly. Hilarious. So your your soft, cuddly, fuzzy teddy bear beast is transformed back into the charming prince who is Klaus Kinski. Right. So I don't know. I may have to go back and watch that one at some point or see what else Shelley Duvall had in store for us. Sorry, I'm just still rolling on the like imagining another story where the, the happy ending is that a teddy bear transforms into the bad guy from Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> 
Yeah, pretty much. Now, I know it, uh, a number of you are already probably shouting this at your uh, your podcast playing device. But yes, we also have to consider Ron Perlman from the Beauty and the Beast TV series, which aired 1987 through 1990. It was set in then modern day New York City. I think he lived in the sewers underneath the city. Uh, Linda Hamilton played the beauty. And George R. R. Martin was a writer and producer on the show. It was v- certainly a, it was a, a very lion-themed uh, beast here. And ultimately, just really nice uh, makeup effects. Also, definitely some, uh, some hairband hair going on here. Yeah, very much Ron Perlman in cat mode. And I think they actually almost kind of extra prettified him, extra made him like even more good looking for this role. And this is something that I, I think some other Beauty and the Beast adaptations suffer from. Like, maybe they, they don't commit enough to making the Beast look scary, to making the Beast look monstrous. I mean, you know that the Beast and the Beauty are going to fall in love in the end. Uh, so, like, eh, there's a temptation to kind of make the Beast too handsome. This is not a problem with the 1978 movie we are talking about today. No, they commit hard to making the Beast loathsome and dangerous looking. But yeah, this Ron Perlman version of the Beast, like this is the character that launched a thousand furries. It has to be. I mean, this yeah. this is a good looking Beast man. Yeah, I mean, if if you're into people who look like cats, this guy's top of the heap. Yeah. Now, uh, another really good looking, I think, a very stylish beast. This is a, now this is not one I've seen, but there was apparently a 1987 Canon Films musical adaptation of Beauty and the Beast <gasps> starring John Savage as the Beast. I've included an image here and uh, Rebecca De Mornay as the Beauty. As you can see, it looks very glamorous. It looks a little, uh, yeah. I would say, Sting-esque. I totally see that. It looks again like they're trying to make the Beast too handsome. Now, I have a question mark for the 1976 TV adaptation, Beauty and the Beast, that starred George C. Scott as the Beast. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure offhand who played the Beauty, but uh, Patricia Quinn of Rocky Horror is in it, I think, in a bit role. But the Beast in this film, again, played by George C. Scott, they decided, well, we've done the Wolfman look to death. Let's do something different. Let's make him look like a warthog. Yep, he's a wild boar with, like, tusks coming up out of the bottom of his nose, around mm-hmm. his nose, but above his mouth. Or, I don't know, maybe his lip kind of curves around there. I, I I didn't watch any footage from this one, so I don't know what the apparatus looks like in motion. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, uh, this one also is a lot to take in. He also does look like George C. Scott. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you pay for George C. Scott, you don't want to hide all of that, uh, right? beast getting hit by football (laughs) (laughs) now it is an interesting question like if you're doing beauty and the beast or as with our next two examples things that are beauty and the beast adjacent like what are you focusing on here is are you focusing on like the love story about the transformative nature of love about the like uh, the, the duality of man or is it something a little more like purely erotic and you just like the idea of beast creatures and women, um, you know, in in close proximity to one another. Right. I can see how you could go either way. I mean, I think the two adaptations I've seen both focus more on how love can change someone who has a bad personality. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas in uh, these other adaptations, yeah, you can imagine how it's just kind of like, ooh, this is dangerous. This is titillating. 
Yeah, and not surprising, one of them comes from the mid-70s. The 1975 film The Beast, this was a French erotic horror film uh, that actually has nothing to do with the plot of Beauty and the Beast, but it has a beast, it has beauties, and it has a historic setting. Um, I saw this one when it was, weirdly enough, streaming into every American household on Netflix uh, several years back, but it is not really appropriate for for most viewers, maybe any viewers. It's kind of an obscene curiosity of the time. Is this picture of the beast in the outline from that? I believe so, yes. It has kind of like a giant humanoid rat kind of appearance. Yes, I was going to yeah. say rat. Yeah. Now, another one. <laughs> also, <laughs> it's kind of, a, kind of a, a perverted rat, though. Like, it's peeping over a branch at the camera. Yeah, I mean, it's fitting. It's a perverse film. And yeah. I, I honestly do not recommend anyone see it, but <laughs> it's kind of a notable curiosity uh, when it comes to films of this, uh, this subject matter. All right. Now, a uh, an, another film in this sort of genre, this area of, of beauty slash beast adaptation and inspiration, Charles Band attempted a serious erotic horror film in Meridian back in 1990. Again, this one's not based on Beauty and the Beast. Uh, it has a beauty. It has a beast. And it's notable because um, uh, the story that, that I read is that Band essentially used an altered version of the Dracula Wolfman costume from Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, from the Coppola movie. Yes. So you attached a picture. I recognize that. There is a scene where uh, Gary Oldman transforms into a wolf-like creature. And, yep, that's what he looks like. Yeah. So I believe that the story is they had access through some effects guys to essentially that costume, but they realized they couldn't just use that costume, nor did they necessarily want to, but they had to adapt it a little bit. So it's uh, it's very similar, but different enough. Like in the end, they kind of handsomed it up a little bit. They made it a little smoother. Uh, like they realized that, you know, we don't want him to be a complete monster. We want people to want to see these two together. Okay, so there are a lot of Beauty and the Beast film adaptations out there, as well as some movies just loosely inspired by the Beauty Beast concept. Uh, But uh, I think this one really stands out. Uh, Beauty and the Beast 78 is uh, the the Czech film or Czechoslovak film is one I really enjoyed because I said at the top it was gothic horror. Now that I think back on it, I don't know if it's really horror. What do you think, Rob? Does this count as horror? I mean, it is full of horrible images, but I don't know if the primary purpose of the film is to scare you. No, I don't think it's quite a horror film. And I I wasn't I wasn't sure based on the the visual uh, flavor of the of the piece. I wasn't sure that was going to be the case because certainly everything is gothic and dark and grimy enough. And we firmly establish a world uh, a setting at the beginning of the film in which horrible things can and will happen. Uh, but then ultimately the, the trajectory of the plot takes us in more traditional places. Like it, it sticks more to the fairy tale and essentially delivers the fairy tale with some gothic dark stylings. And I would say especially the first half of the film is really filled with ambiance with uh, with with scary environments. This is a movie where the director really wants to let us revel in the texture of certain environments and emotions. And uh, that leads to another stylistic aspect of it. I would say that there are long stretches of this movie without any dialogue. So I think you could characterize it. And I have seen people online characterize the movie as slow, uh, something that audiences used to the fast paced plotting and editing of modern movies can 
sometimes struggle with, but I recommend giving slow movies like this a, a shot if you usually don't. They can be very rewarding, a very rewarding experience if you kind of slow yourself down, like you slow down your expectations and you say, I'm just going to sit here and kind of soak in this. Because a lot of times with movies like this, the filmmakers are... Uh, they're just offering you a different kind of experience than than we usually expect in, in modern American movies today. And this is an experience where you are not always in a hurry to advance the plot in every scene. Some scenes are about inviting you to linger in a feeling. Absolutely. Yeah, this is one of those films where you should just you know, lay back in a dark room with it. Uh, if, if you have a calming beverage you like to imbibe, uh, have that with you as well and just uh, let the darkness overflow. It will invite you to rub the fur, and it is some really dank, gloomy fur, uh, especially in the first half of the movie. Uh, we'll, we'll get into more of that about the atmosphere when we describe the plot. Uh, let's see. I guess we've already done the elevator pitch. I mean, it is an adaptation of Beauty and the Beast, so mm-hmm. you sort of know what you're getting, but there are some stylistic twists and, and maybe some plot twists we can uh, talk about later on. Do we want to feature any trailer audio, Rob? I think before we started, you were saying that the there isn't really a trailer that has much English narration or anything like that. Not that I could find. In fact, the main trailer I came across is just uh, blaring organ music from the uh, from the film and some awesome visuals, none of which will translate over into the uh, the audio of podcasting. So I tell you what, let's just do uh, you know maybe like ten seconds of it because I will come back to discussing the music in a bit. Blast away. Now, before we proceed here, uh, you might be wondering, well, where can I watch this film? If I want to watch it and then come back to the discussion. This one, I have to admit, might be harder to find. We watched it on the second-run Blu-ray rented from Atlanta's Videodrome video rental store. I'm sure you can find some unofficial streams out there, but I I can't find any official ones as of this recording. So I would say keep checking, you know, because stuff comes comes online and goes offline. But as of right now, uh, Criterion Collection has some of the films by this director, but not this particular one. Uh, So who knows, in the future they might add it. There are also a couple of different DVD options that come up for me when I do searches uh, in English or in Czech, but I can't speak to their regions. Also, the version that we had access to still had a lot of 70s grime to the film quality, which uh, I, I still think looks great. I mean, it, it, it still, uh, in a way, adds to the experience of watching a film from this era and, uh, and with this, um, this theme uh, to it. Uh, s- still looks great. Uh, but I just wanted to, to highlight that as well so that you're not out there looking for some sort of immaculate version of it, some immaculate restoration that does not exist. Well, yeah, and I would, I would just say... Uh... This film has a fuzzier baseline, I think, than Mm -hmm. some of the other movies we looked at. Like uh, last week's movie, another Czech film, Invention for Destruction, uh, cleaned up very, uh, very beautifully. And it looked very crisp in the restoration. And I think it was meant to look crisp in the the original. I think this is a movie that was meant to be a bit foggy. 
yeah, it, it works. Like it's kind of like you're watching this film projected onto the, onto an oil stained sheet on, on the dilapidated side of a barn, mm. and uh, and while things howl in the mist uh, beyond the farm, and I think that works. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. 
All right. Well, let's get into the people of note here, the people who made this film. Um, uh, obviously, we're going to be referencing a number of, um, of Czech and Slovakian um, uh, individuals here. So our apologies for uh, uh, in, any incorrect pronunciations regarding these names. All right. First of all, the director also uh, has, a, has a screenplay credit, Juraj Hertz, who lived 1934 through 2018. Czechoslovak film director, actor, and scene designer. He was born in modern-day Slovakia to Jewish parents, and together they actually survived the Holocaust. They were imprisoned at the Ravensbrück concentration camp. And while his immediate family survived, some 60 relatives, I'm, I'm reading, perished in the Holocaust. Wow. He began uh, acting in the early 1960s and writing and directing in the mid-1960s. His big breakout film was the dark comedy horror film The Cremator from 1969, which won a whole slew of awards. It was even nominated for an Oscar in the U.S. for you know Best uh, Foreign Language Film. And it details a cremator's descent into madness in the 1930s with plot elements that, and I haven't seen it, but we're reading that the plot elements involve both the Nazis and Tibetan Buddhism. Wow. It was based on a novel by Ladislav Fuchs. His other major films include uh, 1972's Morgiana, which is another gothic horror film, uh, 2010's Haberman, which uh, featured uh, Carl Roden. He's a uh, he's a Czech actor who has played roles in various um, international and Western pictures, like he was in some Guillermo del Toro films, such as Blade Two and Hellboy. Mm. Oh, who was he in Blade Two? In Blade Two, he was the lawyer of the vampire lord, though his voice was dubbed in that, so that's not uh, Roden's actual voice. Yes, okay, just looked him up. I recognize this guy. Yeah, yeah, he's he's been in a number of things. He has a he has a nice he's, he plays a good villain, uh, though not not only villains, but a lot of villains, especially outside of the Czech Republic. Now back to Hertz. He also did the 2009 film TMA. Uh, his 1979 film The Ninth Heart sounds really interesting as well, and apparently involves a wizard's castle and is a fairy tale movie, much like this one. After having seen Beauty and the Beast, I think I would watch any Hertz movie that has a castle. Yeah. <laughs> he also, this is a film we've mentioned in passing on the show before. He also directed 1982's uh, Ferret Vampire, which is, this is the one about a car that drinks blood, apparently. Is it Ferret or is it Ferrot Vampire? Ferrot, I think Ferrot, yes. That might be the a type of car, uh, but we sound hilarious to people who know cars right now. Yeah, sorry. Yes. But it's Vampire Car. It's a Vampire Car movie. That looks uh, like it's quite interesting. And I noticed that the director himself has a cameo in it as Dracula in a silent film. As an actor, he appeared in 1968's The Flat, which was a short by Jan Svenkmeyer. And he has, uh, all told, something like 47 directorial credits. Uh, it's a pretty full filmography with subject matter ranging from fantasy and horror uh, to stuff like his 1986 Holocaust drama, The Night Overtakes Me. All right. Um, we mentioned this uh, last week uh, because Frantisek Rubin was, uh, was one of the credited writers on 1958's Invention for Destruction by Carl Zeman. Uh, he lived 1910 through 1971. He has play screenplay uh, credits on this film. And, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's notable for a number of works, including uh, the epic poem Romance for Flugelhorn, uh, which was written in 1961 and was adapted for film in 1967. Mm. 
Oda Hoffman is also credited, uh, has a screenplay credit on this. This individual lived 1928 through 1989, uh, Czechoslovak writer of children's literature and young adult literature and a screenwriter. His story, 30 Maidens and Pythagoras, was made into a 1977 film. And they have a number of interesting looking screenplay credits from a long career, including Merry Christmas Octopus from 1987, <laughs> which has this lovely description on IMDb. Quote, Eva and her younger brother, Johnny, own two sentient octopuses made out of strange matter. Will their parents divorce and ruin Christmas? Will a scientist find a way to use their pets as fuel? Live-action film with stop-motion octopuses. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. That, that sounds great. I looked at stills from it. It looks interesting. It, this is apparently a follow-up uh, from a film that came out the same year, The Octopuses from the Second Floor. So please, if you grew up watching these films, if you have any connection to these octopuses, uh, please write in and tell us about it. Yeah, I want to hear from the people for whom this was their Morozko. <laughs> All right, let's get into the cast here. Uh, it's Beauty and the Beast, so let's start with Beauty, uh, who has the name Julie in this. Yes, Julie or Julie in this movie is played by Zdena Studenkova. Yeah, born 1954, award-winning Slovak film and stage actress, singer and author, and in general a major Slovak celebrity figure, it seems. She was especially active on Slovakian television, at least up until 2021. Her other film credits include a 1998 Czech adaptation of Lady Chatterley's Lover and 1995's The Garden. Oh, and also 1975's The Motive for Murder. Um, however, it seems that she's only responsible for the physical performance of Julie in this film. Another actor provides the voice. Wasn't it the case that multiple characters in this movie are dubbed by different actors than appear on the film? Yeah, I mean, there's a one of the sisters is, and then the Beast. Though with the yeah. Beast, it kind of makes sense because the Beast, you need somebody who can do the voice of the monster while still looking like the prince. And it's kind of a big ask for uh, uh, for casting like Dan Stevens from the 2017 live adaptation of the Disney. Like that makes sense because Dan Stevens sounds scary and still has like, uh, you know, the the Hollywood good looks going on. Klaus mm. Kinski is is a misfire because <laughs> he sounds like a beast, but he also looks like a beast when he is uh, in his human form. And so it doesn't really work. Well, despite the fact that it's not her voice on the tape, uh, Zdena Studenkova, I, I thought was great as Julia. Uh, she has a, a wonderful screen presence and she, uh, I mean, a lot of what the movie calls on her to do is to, uh, just with like her expressions and, and everything inject like, uh, life into dead and moldering environments and sort of, uh, restore the promise of joy and hope for the future with a smile. And she does that. Yeah, I mean, she's solid. But her voice is provided by Tatiana Medvyaka, who was born in 1953, a Czech actor whose credits include 1986's Veronica, in which she starred, plus a lot of supporting roles in recent decades. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah, she also appears in the film, uh, such films as uh, 2011's The House, 2018's Bathory, Countess of Blood, mm. uh, which also had Carl Roden in it. That was like a, a Czech film with an international cast. Did she play Elizabeth Bathory? No, she played a supporting oh. character. I believe Bathory was played by Anne Fryle. Oh, uh, okay. All right. So that's the beauty. Let's talk about the beast. <laughs> just think, oh no! What if? So we're here. We're doing. We're talking about all the Beauty and the Beast movies today. What if one day we have to talk about all the Elizabeth Bathory movies? 
Oh, goodness. Uh, yeah, I'm not <laughs> even sure offhand what Bathory film would be appropriate. Probably none, yeah. So the Beast and the Prince in this are physically played by Velastamil Harapes, born 1946. Uh, this is another Czech actor who was active on TV and screen up through, I believe, 2019. His credits include 1967's Marketa Lazarova, a medieval film about the shift from paganism to Christianity, and 1977's Day for My Love. This is the physical performer? Yeah, yeah. He's the physical performer. He's also the prince, yeah. He was interesting because though he was playing a beast, he had an incredibly graceful way of moving, almost uh, almost as if like uh, like he were a baller. What's the the a ballerina? Someone trained in ballet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as we'll discuss, he also uh, and a lot of this comes down to the direction, of course. But uh, very piercing eyes. In many cases, just an eye. You'll see a single eye of the beast staring at you, staring into the camera, into the viewer, uh, and it's very effective. Certainly a full-body performance. Mm-hmm. Um, also of note is that the beast is sometimes discredited as, as uh, Netvor, uh, which is Czech for monster or beast. Now, the voice of the beast is provided by Yiri Zajinsky, who lived 1939 through 2007, a uh, Czech actor who seems to have been more of a supporting player in film, did a lot of Czech television, but he was apparently more of a, of a larger figure in just uh, the theater of Prague. Okay, so that is uh, our Pana and our Netvor, but there are supporting characters in the film as well. For example, uh, Julie's father. Yes, uh, the father, uh, Otek. Otek is Czech for father, and I didn't really realize that till very recently. I was familiar with Jan Svankmeyer's film, Little Otek. And then when we were looking at various Czech actors recently, I was beginning to notice, like, oh, man, this this uh, male actor really played a lot of Oteks when he was older. Um, and then, of course, the the answer to that it was because he played a lot of characters that are just credit that that are just father in the script. Okay, so father does not have a name that we know of in this movie. He's just Otek. Right. Yeah, played by Václav Voska, a Czech actor. This was probably his biggest film, as uh, based on what I was looking at. But he also played Watson in a 1971 Czech Sherlock Holmes film, and he was in 1949's Distant Journey, which was uh, an early Holocaust film. All right, so that's the father, but now we got two stepsisters to roll through here. Are they steps? I think they're half sisters. Well, yes, but they they would be Julie's stepsisters, right? But they are, or they have. Oh, sisters. I thought they were Julie's half sisters. Yeah. I could be wrong. I thought they all had the. I I thought was the father. Well, I'm not sure. So w- I think w- that the I think she Julie's mother is not their mother, but right. th- but her father is everyone's father. Yeah. Okay, so we have two sisters at any okay. rate. <laughs> and this one, the first one here is the sister Gabinka. Uh, this is the blonde stepsister. And okay. she is played by Jana uh, Brashchova, who was born 1940, a Czech actor and writer. Uh, her other films include Carl Zaman's The Fabulous Baron Munchausen and the 1976 sci-fi film In the Dust of the Stars, which looks quite interesting. Is this a film that you were telling me about previously? Oh, uh, hmm. You know, I haven't, I definitely have not seen this one, but I might have been poking around at uh, old sci fi movies and come across this and raised it as a possibility for us to watch. Yeah, it looks, it looks interesting. Yeah. Uh, but her filmography is just full of interesting looking films. She was also in 1973's Miss Golem. She was in 1976's I Killed Einstein, Gentlemen. <laughs> and she was also in 1957's uh, Stenata, which was co written by Milos Foreman, 
uh, to whom she was married from 1958 through 1962. She's great in this movie. Uh, the Both of the, the stepsisters or half-sisters are great because they're... <laughs> I don't know if there's an interesting relationship. I mean, so they are portrayed as just like nasty, vain, selfish uh, haters, but mm-hmm. also they're not fully villains. Like Julie still kind of likes them and in a weird way gets along with them despite the way they are. Yeah, <laughs> but they are they are comically awful, too. They provide some nice comic relief in this film because, yeah, all they care about is money and jewels and fancy dresses uh, and uh and and there are any niceties that they display are just uh, as a result of or in search of those things. They also have a series of hilariously awful fiancés and husbands. That's right, yeah. All right, so that's the blonde sister. The dark-haired sister is Malinka, played by Zuzana Korokova. Uh, she was born in 1948. Just the physical performance here. Her other credits include uh, Alan Robe Grillet's 1968 film The Man Who Lies, 1983's Salt and Gold, and 1979's The Man to Kill. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read a number of uh, Robe Grillet books, but I've never seen any of his films, uh, for which he's also very well known. Uh, but I think they tend toward cerebral erotica, which has never been my go-to genre, while the books I've read of his are generally new novel takes on spy, war, and murder uh, plots sometimes with psychosexual themes, but mm-hmm. for the most part, uh, not. But this uh, character also had a different actor doing the voice. Yes, yeah, the voice of Malinka is Yorga uh, Kotrobova, born nineteen forty-seven. Czech actor whose credits include nineteen sixty-two's The Stress of Youth and 1965's 90 Degrees in the Shade. She apparently worked a lot in dubbing, uh, especially Western television shows that need to be dubbed into Czech. Uh, So, for instance, I read that she's one of the primary voices on the Czech dub of M.A.S.H. Mm. And those are really the prime human characters and beast character in the film. Uh, Just one more credit, and that's the music. The music is by Peter Hopka. Born 1944, died in 2014. Uh, the musical soundscape for this film is basically has three speeds. There's creepy bubbling ambience. There's creepy organ music that is often like kind of blaring, and then there's a romantic refrain uh, that we we hear um, anytime there's something romantic or dreamy going on mm-hmm. on the screen. Um, it, it's all quite good. There, yeah, it is good. There's also a bit of whimsical harpsichord, like when yeah. uh, Julie is kind of uh, prancing around and playing with the statues. That's right. Um, Hopka's other scores include um, the, the Foray vampire film, The Ninth Heart, 1985's The Third Dragon, which is another uh, an interesting looking uh, Czech fantasy film. And he frequently worked with lyricist uh, Michael Horakek, who ran for the Czech presidency in 2018. Hmm. So anyway, uh, we'll get into the plot next. But anyone out there who's more familiar with, with Czech cinema and, um, and, and Czech celebrities and so forth, feel free to write in and let us know what you think about these, these particular performers and the other works that they've been involved in. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. 
there's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we ready to talk plot. Let's do it. So this movie opens cold on a landscape that is the very heart of gloom. It looks like a a land that has never been touched by sunlight, even though it is not nighttime in in the Mm. opening scene. So you have black mounds of earth and, and twisted roots and broken tree trunks, and it's all shrouded in fog. In a way, it looks a bit like the blasted terrain in photos you see of no man's land between the uh, frontline trenches in World War I. Uh, but it's not like that. It just seems kind of naturally this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, wolves howl and you hear some whimpering somewhere uh, unseen. And then the owls are singing along, of course. The atmosphere is just dank. It is like an outdoor dungeon. And then into this gloom-drenched landscape comes a man, a man riding a horse. And then there's another and then another. 
and we see it as a caravan. Uh, and apparently their delivery route requires them to pass through this hellish landscape. Uh, but then wait a minute. No, actually, the, the scouts uh, at the head of the line worry that maybe they made a wrong turn after all. Maybe they don't even have to be here. Uh, so their journey has turned into, for one reason or other, an unbearable slog through this cursed wilderness. Yeah, this whole segment is great uh, with this caravan shipment encountering you know, this mud and difficulty. And we see all of these different faces, all of the, 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 the actors that are uh, portraying the, the caravan people here. They all have this like really rugged look to them. Um, a lot of these faces reminded me of um, uh, the, the characters in uh, uh, Hieronymus Bosch's Christ Carrying the Cross. You know, the one where you have mm. I think, the side profile of Christ looking dreadful. And then there are all these just awful Present faces in the background. That's kind of what you have in this scene. I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Well, one of those faces is the face of a woman, uh, co- sort of covered in mud. She's she's very uh, she's she's having a hard time. Uh, but she runs to the head of the caravan to warn the scout. She says, we have to turn back. We cannot travel through these woods because whoever crosses these evil routes will. But before she can explain, he's like, no, you know, I won't listen. So he just uh, sends her away. This the, the, the recurring trend in the movie. People don't listen to women who have uh, very important information about places you shouldn't go to, yeah. uh, but they just disregard it and go anyway. Yeah. So we see the caravan struggling, these wooden wagons going along through the mud and in this horrible wilderness. And then we go to the credit sequence and the credit sequence is set over some thrillingly bizarre paintings. Rob, I don't know if you're able to figure out what what this was in the background, but. Uh, I think I see mummified fish horses with hooks for bones and fruit or eggs coming out of their eyes. We see jellyfish fairies throwing apples into the sun and worshiping doors. We see vines with hands, uh, cables running out of a human skeleton to power an oyster. Yeah, there's definitely like a Flemish mushroom trip uh, (laughs) quality to these paintings, though I did not specifically uh, identify these paintings. I'm not sure what we're looking at here, but it, it works. Well, back into the human action, we open on a market scene uh, that, from what I saw, might have had some unsimulated shots of like a, a butcher working and people doing animal husbandry. So, warning here if you're sensitive about seeing stuff like that, though it does go by quickly. Yeah. Uh, but the point is, we're seeing the marketplace bustling. Bakers are making bread, butchers are butchering meat, there's uh, people herding animals all over the place, there's uh, just lots of stuff going on. We're in town, which is a big contrast with the forsaken woods from the pre-credit sequence. Yeah, and it, it, this all makes sense because we're, we're shortly going to learn all this activity means that people with money in the town are preparing for a party. That's why animals are being rounded up and things are being slaughtered uh, because there, there is a party that's going to happen. Right. And so here we go on to meet our main family. We have uh, Julie or Julie. Again, this is Stana Studenkova, who is uh, she she is kind, self-effacing, beautiful and pure of heart. And uh, when we first meet her, she's playing the harpsichord and and she's just sort of a ray of sunshine. She kind of puts a happy twist on everything. Then we have her father, who I originally thought his name was Otek, but that just means father. So uh, we have we have father here who seems to be also uh, like Julie. He's kind and pure of heart, but also maybe not good with money. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he is a merchant, but we learn he has many debts. But he's optimistic about this. And I think this might be part of his problem yeah. is that he's he's always like, oh, yeah, the next uh, I got some money coming in and that's going to fix everything. 
Yes. And then we have Julie's uh, stepsisters or half-sisters, Malinka and Gabinka, who are nasty, selfish rats who just like <laughs> want money and jewels. Right. And when we first meet everybody, they are preparing for their weddings. Julie's sitting there playing the harpsichord and talking to them. And uh, Malinka and Gabinka are talking about their, their upcoming weddings. One sister says, uh, uh, Julie, wow, I hope you can at least marry a duke or some kind of minor royalty instead of the merchants that our father set us up with. Uh, they're, they're very ungrateful about the, the matches that have been gotten for them. And then Julie says she will never marry because that would mean leaving father alone. She's so loyal. Just so loyal. I mean, that's very kind, Julie, but it also seems it's kind of like overly like self-sacrificing, which is a yeah. theme for Julie. Yeah. And, and I guess a fairy tale theme in general it reminds me of uh, Jack Frost. Remember where um, uh, uh, where the daughter in that is, is so loyal to father that she will gladly sacrifice herself and freeze to death in the woods if it prevents him from getting a, a butt whooping from the stepmom. Yeah. I don't know. These kind of character dynamics in fairy tales make me think about how, well, of course it's good to, you know, encourage the the virtues of being generous to the needs of others and and, uh, self-sacrificing in some ways. But also, like, you should be realistic about different stakes. Yes. Uh, But in the scene, we also first see an important plot device, which is a painting of Julie's mother. Uh, This is Julie's mother, but not the mother of the, the other two sisters. And in this painting, she looks a lot like Julie, except she looks sad, almost disappointed. Uh, It looks like she's gazing out of frame in the portrait, almost at something she desires but knows she cannot have. Yeah, yeah. It's a a haunting-looking painting. And uh, I have to say, paintings in movies like this, they don't always look convincing. And I'm not sure how the style here necessarily fits into the intended time period, but I don't know. It works. I like it. Uh, But remember those, like, fiancés the sisters were complaining about? Well, here we go into a a scene with the two horrible fiancés, and it was really funny. One of them is drinking wine with, uh, they're drinking wine with Otek, the father, and he's like, oh, fine vintage wine, such a spicy tang. And then the other Mm -hmm. one says, it's a waste to serve it to wedding guests. And and I think the deal is the father owes these two guys money, which, like, uh, these are kind of, I don't know if they're supposed to be rich or not, but there are these other merchants, and he owes them money, and um, I don't know, that that's a rough situation, I guess, being deeply in debt to your son-in-law. Yeah, yeah, so it's not really a sense that he's paying them off by uh, by letting them marry his daughters, but maybe he's just, like, buying a little time. Uh, but he insists, you know, I've got money coming in, got money coming in. That's right, because I think his debt is that uh, he has a shipment of goods coming in from all over the world. He's got Venetian mirrors and lace from Brussels, fine china, diamonds cut in Amsterdam. And once all these goods arrive and he's able to sell them, he will be swimming in cash and able to pay them back double what they loaned him. Mm -hmm. And then you think, "Uh uh-oh, wait a minute. Do you think that shipment was the caravan we saw really struggling in the haunted woods earlier? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's where it comes together. Uh, this this shipment of very breakable objects is probably doomed. I mean, the diamonds will be all right, but everything else <laughs> seems pretty, pretty breakable. If you can find them. Yeah. Uh, so uh, tragedy on the caravan. The, the caravan comes up. They're going along a mountain pass along along the side of a ravine. And then they come to the end of the road. The path just stops and it's overgrown. And they say, well, we'll have to hack our way through. And I was noticing, Rob, I don't know if you noticed the same thing. 
This setting seemed similar to me to the scene on the road with the where, that the guy has to travel through to get to Orlok's castle in Werner Herzog's Nosferatu, just like a soul-violating portrait of Eastern European wilderness where where the rocks and the trees look kind of evil and alien, as if from another planet or another eon of Earth. Yeah, yeah. it's been a long time since I've seen Herzog's Nosferatu, but but I, I, I know what you're talking about here. And I, I didn't go crazy with the uh, comparisons of locations, but I did note that Nosferatu was at least partially filmed in then Czechoslovakia. So hmm. uh, so maybe maybe we are looking at some of the same locations or at least same regions. But then as the scouts uh, for the caravan are hacking through the, the bushes that have overgrown the path, they see something on the other side. What is that? Some kind of creature? Uh, Rob, can you describe the glimpse they get? <laughs> I didn't get a good glimpse of it. I just yeah. saw like like a dark movement. I don't know if I blinked or or what. What did you see? Well, I mean, I saw it. I think we get a suggestion of the same kind of creature that appears multiple times in the movie. Not the beast himself, but mm. these other beings that uh, that sort of serve the beast and occupy his castle oh, or his, yes. his mansion. Yeah, those things, they're kind of like goblins or some sort of homunculi. And they do also throw you off the scent of what the beast is going to look like, because you see these guys in glimpses long before you actually uh, see the visage of the beast. So one of the caravan guides picks a white rose from the shrubs and uh, tosses it to uh, the woman who warned them not to enter the haunted forest. So I guess like <laughs> she didn't want to be here anyway, uh, but he's like, hey, here's a white rose. And then uh, like a fire leaps up from hell and engulfs the guide. So he's burning. Carts start tumbling into the ravine. They're trying to turn around and escape. All of the goods are pouring out of the carts and crashing down the rocks and down the hillside and everything. All the goods are being destroyed. And then there was one part I didn't quite understand. Suddenly humans are fighting each other, like sword fighting and shooting each other. Is this like bandits attacking the caravan? I didn't fully understand. I was a little lost on that as well. I wasn't sure if these were newly arrived bandits or if just chaos took hold. And since the caravan was lost, everyone's like, well, let's just grab some stuff and run. And some people were staying loyal and some weren't and they were squabbling over the remains. I'm not mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, so I, I couldn't quite tell. But anyway, that's all going on. The, the caravan meets a, a horrible end. And the woman from the caravan survives the bandits or whatever that is. And she runs away. She runs off into no man's land. But she's chased by someone or something on horseback, and she eventually gets backed up against a, a rock or a tree or something, and she turns and she looks at what it is that's following her and screams in horror. And at this moment, we get the uh, what I guess is just a staple of 70s gothic horror uh, cinema, and that is we get the breast slash. Uh, she's slashed by a claw on the breast. No, nothing pulls her heart out because this is not that sort of movie. Uh, but uh, but this seems to be a staple of films like The Lorelei's Grasp and uh, Horror Rises from the Tomb. Very next thing we cut to, it's repo time. <laughs> uh, back in town, back at the uh, Otex house, the goods failed to arrive. So the two disgusting fiancés are having repo men take everything that the father owns. The, uh, the two half-sisters are mad. They, they make fun of Julie. Uh, they say, like, wow, you would go out in the market and try to sell sunshine if, if you thought it would help our stupid father. And she agrees. In fact, she would try to do that if it would help him. Needless to say, the weddings are off at this point. 
I think so. Yeah, something something's gone very wrong, uh, and everything in the house is being taken away and sold. The carriage is gone. Uh, the, all, all all the furniture is gone, uh, and the sisters talk about what there is left to sell. Basically, the only thing the creditors didn't take was the painting of Julie's mother. And the sisters say, hey, we should sell that frame so we should buy a necklace. Uh, but then they <laughs> conclude that they could probably only get a dog collar or maybe some cat droppings for it. <laughs> They're so awful. Yeah. So the father is clearly, he's he's just grief-stricken. He confides in Julie. He says, uh, they want to get married. They'll never forgive me for making them poor. But Julie consoles him. She says it wasn't his fault. And then the father says, you know what? I've got no choice. I have got to go try to sell the only possession we have left, the painting of of Julie's mother, so I can buy my two evil daughters some jewelry. Uh, so he offers Julie as he's leaving, he says he's going to bring her a jewel of a different kind. He says, would you like a wayside rose? Hmm. Now she says all she wants is for him to return safe. And then she tries to warn him. She's like, I don't know. I don't think you should travel into the haunted woods because when she was a girl, her mother told her stories of a curse placed over the forest and a moldering mansion in which there dwelt a nameless terror. But is Otek going to listen? Otek's not going to listen. No, no. Once again, uh, warnings from a woman uh, go completely unheeded. He's like, yeah, you remind me a lot of your mother and takes off directly to the haunted woods. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. 
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I love this sequence where father goes to the woods. He goes out and he somehow gets off of his horse. Does his horse die or is it left behind or something? I believe it dies. Yeah. uh, Yeah. For some reason, he's without a horse. Uh, And then he's trying to cross this just unpassable landscape. It's as if the earth were covered in spikes and barbed wire, but it's just like the woods. It's the jagged texture of the forest. And then suddenly there's a light in the distance hovering in the faraway trees. And he wanders toward it. He wanders into a great country manor with gothic decorations and marble statues. And he's got this big painting with him, like covered in a cloth. And as he wanders inside the, um, what's it called? The gate, the portcullis or whatever it is, falls shut behind him. And there's actually a kind of disembodied hospitality in the manor here. Uh, so there, there's a fire burning in the fireplace and, uh, Ooh, and then some very interesting things start to happen. Rob, could you describe this? Yeah. So if you're familiar with the Disney adaptation of Beauty and the Beast, you know that the chores get done in the castle because you have magical, um, comedic animated, uh, household items that engage in lavish musical numbers as they set the table and bring out the food and so forth and invite everyone to be their guest. In this, uh, dank film, the chores and the tasks are carried out by these strange goblins or homunculi that we, we rarely get a good look at, and they seem to keep to the shadows. They'll kind of creep out or slowly lower themselves down on a chandelier so they can you know, pour some wine or something like that. Uh, it's, it was one of the weirdest things uh, in the film for me that is also just realized so wonderfully. Yeah, so when Otak comes in and there's uh, there's like a, a pig roasting on a spit in the fireplace, so he's going to get some meat, but then behind his back, just a hand, just a hand comes down to pour him a glass of beer, and it pours, I thought this was significant, it pours until it overflows the glass. So he's being offered great hospitality. Yeah, by revolting creatures that cling to the shadows and can probably barely do what they are tasked with. Yes, but also, I mean, it is, despite all the hospitality in material terms, it is scary. Like when he looks into the flames in the fireplace, he sees a horrible face behind it. Yeah, but it's 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 not quite clear. Like you kind of get the, looking through his eyes, you're like, did I see a face or did I not see a face? Yeah. Um, yeah. We see more of that creature later, so it is confirmed. But hey, at least he's out of the wet. He's out of the cold. Uh, the man has a fire and some food and some wine. And he has not only that, 
inadvertently, he's found a buyer for the one Mm -hmm. item he has left to sell. So the father falls asleep by the fire. And while he sleeps, we see a point of view shot of something carrying a candelabra through the hallways. And it comes into the room and it looks upon the painting of Julie's mother and it is entranced. And when the father wakes up in the morning, there is a fortune in gold and jewels left by his side. So he wakes and he sees no one, but he understands the deal that has been made. And he announces his thanks to the walls and he takes the treasures along with him and he's on his way out of the castle. But on the way out, he sees a white rose growing in the courtyard and he picks it for Julie. Immediately, the hammer comes down. There's a, like a monster hand with talons and, uh, and a voice saying, My rose, I should have left you to the wolves. And then it commands Otek to look at him. He says, Look at me. And uh, the father is filled with horror. But the father negotiates for his life. So the beast is like, I'm going to kill you. But before the beast kills him, the father asks that he be allowed to take the treasure to his daughters and make arrangements for their future and say goodbye. And after that, he gives his word that he will return and let the beast have his revenge. And then strangely, the beast says, can humans be trusted? Mm -hmm. It's almost as if the beast is unfamiliar with what humans are like. Uh, But the beast says, if one of your daughters comes to die in your place, I will let you live. Art of the deal. Art of the deal. (laughs) (laughs) So Otek uh, gets out of there. He takes the golden jewels with him. Uh, He says, you know, uh, uh, oh, and the golden jewels apparently is like good gold, I suppose. It's able to buy back all their stuff. They have all their stuff again. The daughters, uh, uh, Julie's playing her harpsichord and the daughters have their dresses and stuff. Uh, But father is telling them, he says, you know, I'm going to have to leave. I will be gone across the sea and away for a long time. And I didn't quite understand here. I was wondering, is he lying to them to hide the fact that he is going to keep his word to the beast and go back and die? Or is he telling the truth that he's going to be away for a long time over the sea because he's like, I don't know, planning to hide out from the beast in America or something? Uh, I don't know. That's an interesting possibility. I, I took it to mean that he's like, I've got to, he doesn't want to say, I have to go back and let a, a beast rip my throat out. Uh, he's just, covering it up with this nicety this lie it's like well i gotta go away on a long trip daughters please enjoy this the the fortune that i've traded my life for that's what i would have thought but in the very next moment he does reveal that Mm. so he gives the white rose to julie and the other daughters make fun of it they're just so awful they're like oh you couldn't find anything cheaper for her (laughs) and uh the father says in fact this rose is the most expensive gift of all for it will cost him his life And that only by sending one of his daughters in his place could he buy his life back. Now, it's clear he doesn't say that in order to say, you know, one of you should really go in my place. Mm -hmm. But upon hearing this, Julie, uh, she volunteers without telling him. She sneaks off and takes one of the horses to surrender herself to her father's new creditor. And uh, so she does. She rides off uh, to find the mansion in the haunted woods. Like, basically, he just mentions the possibility offhand, and she made a beeline to a horse and rode off. Like, like no hesitation at all. No chance to talk her out of it or anything. Yeah, exactly. She's gone that second. Uh, So Julie rides off through this. uh, We see, actually, I think it's the same no man's land we see, but it's in a different type of light. She rides through that blasted landscape of, like, dead, broken tree trunks. Um, which looks almost as eerie in the sunlight without the fog, but I thought it was maybe kind of significant. Like, So when Julie's there, it's the only time we see it 
lit up like that with like golden sunlight. We've previously only seen it in like the blue light of dusk and the fog. And I wonder what that means. Like it's not a place that's made beautiful by her presence, but it is finally made clear. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And in this film in particular, some films we we analyze on the show, uh, it can kind of be a toss up whether this is intentional by the filmmakers or kind of, uh, you know, just luck of filmmaking. And at the end of the day, if it works, it works, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, in this in this case, with this director, this all feels very intentional. Like there is a, a, a degree of attention that is applied to every shot in this film uh, that, uh, that that makes me believe that, yeah, this is, was totally Hertz's intention. And meanwhile, we get some time with the Beast, who we still have not seen his face yet. We've only seen these point-of-view shots revealing his taloned fingers. And the mm-hmm. Beast uh, looks at the painting of Julie's mother, and he has an inner dialogue. It's like, do you admire her beauty? But then there, there's another voice that's like, see the beauty of the throat. Imagine how beautiful human blood tastes. <laughs> and then he lashes out in anger uh, at, at what? I'm not quite sure. At himself or at his, his situation, at humanity. And this is the first of many scenes where the beast appears to be having some kind of internal uh, uh, dialogue or argument between two different voices, his spoken voice and then a, like a like a whispering voice that is the voice of all all evil and negativity. Yeah. And there are a number of scenes in which the, the beast here is talking to himself and or addressing his primal instinct. Later on, when we actually see the beast there, uh, we go from a, a point of view shots from the beast's perspective to shots where we, the viewer, are like a mirror to the beast or mm-hmm. we, our perspective represents this voice of doubt and horror that he is uh, being that he is having to wrestle with. And uh, it, it works really well, um, you know, because we're sort of made to feel as if we are the beast's human reflection and perhaps he is a reflection of our animal potential. Hmm, yeah. Now, I hate that I have to make this comparison, but is it similar in the Venom movies? Does it like Tom <laughs> Hardy have a have a, a whisper beast voice like this? I, I don't know. I haven't seen the Venom movies, but if so, like it's a solid technique. I mean, I haven't seen them either. I think I've seen a clip from one online. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, yeah, uh, Tom Hardy is a fine actor, but I have not seen <laughs> I have not seen the Venom movie. You can say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so Julie uh, shows up at the Gothic mansion and there are these statues of fawns or devils outside. One statue turns its head to watch her as she enters. So that's this kind of homunculus creature that you were mm-hmm. talking about. And she wanders the cursed home. She sees scenes of abandoned life, furniture covered in dust and cobwebs, pits of boiling mud. Yep. yep. I love the boiling mud. It makes a nice uh, sound effect. But she goes into the same room where her father slept and these flames jump to life in the fireplace. And then again, the homunculus hand reaches down from the ceiling or from the chandelier to pour something in her glass. But this time it looks like it's putting maybe like a drug of some kind in the glass of wine or beer. Is it poisoning her? Is this what's going to take Julie's life? And we see Julie drink it and then collapse on the floor. And then, oh, then there's this crazy sequence where like there's a kind of entombment like she's in a uh in a canopy bed but then the bed is turned into an ornate coffin around her as like four men stand at each corner of the bed and like lower the the top like a coffin lid 
Yeah, and there's a one of the there's a homunculus on top of the coffin lid as well, mm. kind of just hanging out up there and peering out of the darkness. It is a wild sequence. Yeah, but then she dreams, uh, and I guess it's a dream. It's it's in soft focus, so it seems mm-hmm. like it's a dream. She dreams of a a handsome young man with a kind smile carrying her through uh, the doorway in a beautiful, well lit home, and it's like we're seeing a sort of. Uh, uh, a, a deep shot through a number of doorways that are all flung open and they dance in front of a mirror together and he's gentle and he dances gracefully. But coming back to reality now, we see Julie is not dead. She's sleeping. She's breathing. And in her slumber, we see again the point of view shot of the beast. The beast is there. He's looming over her. He reaches for her throat with his claws, with his taloned hand. One of the household gremlins is looking on nearby (laughs) with this expression like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it's very creepy. And we think, is this the end? Is he going to kill Julie? But then he doesn't. We get a reverse shot and we finally see the beast. We see what his face looks like. And it is not what you might expect. Whereas every other uh, Beauty and the Beast adaptation uh, I can think of that, that where I've seen the beast, his head is that of a some type of mammalian predator, mm-hmm. like a, kind of a Lowenmensch figure. But here instead, he is a bird of prey or perhaps even a vulture. Yeah, and it's a very like revolting looking vulture. This is not yeah. a beautiful bird. It is Skeksy-esque, I would say. Yes, a slimy vulture head. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So he's reaching for her throat, but then he stops himself. He can't go through with the murder. And in fact, he not only stops himself, he runs away like he's fleeing. And he does a kind of I don't know what the term for this is, but uh, uh, people out there who know ballet, it's kind of a ballet run. If you know Mm -hmm. what I'm talking about, Rob, like that kind of uh, low running with the kind of like graceful outstretched arms and the cape flapping behind him. Yeah, I, this it, it, it feels like uh, interpretive dance. Yeah. And he runs away arguing with the whispering voice in his head. It's saying, are you running away? And he says, I don't need her blood. Uh, so instead, he's like, uh, he goes to hunt deer in the woods because uh, I guess he, he's like, no, I can just drink deer blood instead of uh, human blood. So the mask and costume, I think, work really well. You, you see the, the, the beast a lot once he's finally visually introduced to you. Um, and when shot in shadow and gloom, um, as it's mostly shot, this co- costume feels really alive. Uh, the, there's a lot of focus on the eye peering out of the, um, you know, the, the side of the bird head. You know, it, we don't mm. see much in the way of like a, um, you know, a, a, the face of the creature because it's, it's a bird. Um, They'll often have the head cocked to one side, staring at us with that one wide bird eye. And it's very unnerving. But, you know, it's one thing for it to look good in the shadow and the gloom. You know, as we've said before, you can have a great monster costume. And if you you don't light it correctly, if you shoot it in a weird way, then it's it's not going to look good. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not surprising that it looks so good in the shadows and the darkness. But eventually he's going to venture out into the daylight more or what passes for daylight in this realm. And uh, the shots like this, I think, would often be a real risk, if not a death sentence for a, a monster suit and a monster effect in a film. Uh, but it's it's a solid enough get up that I think it holds up to the lighting. Um, I also was really struck by the kind of interpretive dance feel that yeah. uh, that it takes on at times when he's running around. He has a cape, which kind of feels like you know, the like the dance version of flying. And I I'm not really sure why this is, but I found that it did not throw me out of the experience of the film. Like saying it out loud, it sounds like the kind of thing that would. Like if Jason Voorhees stopped to dance a little bit, you would you would maybe take issue with that. Uh, so I I'm wouldn't. not sure why, but it didn't it didn't mess with my appreciation of the the film or my immersion in the film at all. I agree, and I also I think Jason Voorhees should dance. <laughs> but anyway, 
the beast looks amazing. Uh, this was really, I think, one of the first things that drew us into this film. Uh, like we realized that we had an, an interesting director with a dark take on Beauty and the Beast, but we might have overlooked it had it just been another uh, mammalian beast man. But when we saw that it was this grotesque, skexy type being, I think we were hooked. Yes, truly. And it is uh, an excellent, uh, unique design. But I also love the characterization of the beast and the way he argues with himself, this other mm-hmm. whispering voice. Like uh, he gets into this argument where the whispering voice says, as an animal, you were alone and happy. Your soul knew nothing of hate nor love. And the voice taunts him like that, telling him that if he does not kill Julie, his curse will be worsened a hundredfold. And so we wonder, oh, wow, how exactly is that going to work? Though we will find out later. But also I was confused because the voice is talking to him like he used to be just entirely a bird of prey that became part man. But we, you know, the the fact that he lives in the mansion with like, uh, all of these human comforts uh, makes you think that he was originally a human who was turned into part beast. So it's not quite clear. I, I wonder what you thought of that. I mean, it gets into the larger themes of the film, right? And about the and, and the story itself, the, the transformative nature of love. Mm-hmm. About how, like, uh, it's, it's, it's I think basically stated the idea that a in this case a woman's love can transform uh, the object of that love. But from the monster side, like that transformation might itself be terrifying because even though the beast is is alone and monstrous and living in this in this degraded state, there's kind of a purity in that state. Like he is unloved, but he is safe from all the uh, potentially problematic aspects of love, the risks of love. Um, And he is able to purely be a monster and live as a monster without any limitations placed on that that might come in, in into act if he were to become more human through someone's love. Yeah, that's true. The voice is sort of telling him, I th- as pure monster, you are strong. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the, the kind of transformation, like the lifting of your curse could itself be fatal to you. Yeah, which uh, this was it was. It was, I think, explored very nicely throughout the film. Uh, so it's a, it's you know, it's a fairy tale movie. It's a monster movie, but it does stir a lot of thought. Oh yeah, totally. Um, so Julie, she she begins to live alone in this this horrible, gloomy mansion where she is uh, essentially being held prisoner, or at least so she thinks. Um, and we see her; uh, she finds joy, sort of. Um, she dances around with these disturbing statues. They look kind of Roman in nature, but I think maybe they're statues of the the prince or the, the beast before he was the beast. Yeah. And, you know, other versions of the Beauty and the Beast, I think, give us more of an origin story for why he is cursed at times. Mm-hmm. I don't think we ever got an explanation in this film. I don't recall one. Yeah. I mean, we don't need one. Uh, like that's uh, the backstory that is, is not required for the enjoyment of the film. And I kind of like it being a mystery. Yes, totally. So there's a first confrontation uh, where she's dining alone by the fire in the evening, and then suddenly the beast comes and he speaks to her from the shadows, but he tells her not to turn around and not to look at him. And so they have conversations like this, where she can never see his face, he's hiding in the shadows behind her, but they they begin to talk and talk about uh, talk about themselves. At first, it's just sort of questions like, "Did you come of your own free will, or did your father force you to come?" And she says, "No, he didn't force me. I, I came of my own free will." 
uh, and he says, did you admire my statue this morning? And she says, yes. And then in the nighttime later, you hear this thudding sound echoing through the halls. And the next morning, the statues had their heads knocked off. And this Mm. makes Julie sad. I think this may be, again, an indication that the beast is afraid of his human side, of the better part of him. Right. And afraid of the, the feelings that are beginning to stir. But it establishes this pattern where the beast hides in the shadows and she never sees his face, but they continue to talk. And it's clear that they start to fall in love with each other. The beast tells Julie eventually that she is the mistress of the mansion. And in fact, she is allowed to leave if she wishes. He says he won't stop her. So there's a there's like a sequence where she uh, goes out to the outer gate as if to leave. But then uh, meanwhile, the beast is watching from above. She can't see him, but he's clearly in anguish about the fact that she's going to leave. But then she doesn't leave. She closes the gate and turns back within. And the beast asks her if she is happy, if she feels well taken care of. And she says yes, but she also misses her family. And it's clear she's not totally happy. So she's being polite in a way, but uh, but but he knows it's not quite true. So he takes her up to this uh, the the holodeck, basically, <laughs> this, this magic terrace where you can look out and see things beyond the walls of the mansion. And Julie is able to look in on her family and what's going on with them. Yeah. And even sort of venture into the simulation, if we want to call it that. Yeah. This is how I understood it at the time. Later on, the magic terrace is revisited and I become even foggier on how it works. Yeah. But she looks in and it's like a big party because her sisters are getting married to princes just like they wanted. Uh, Unfortunately, they're not rich princes. They're poor princes, but they are nobility. Yeah. And they're awful. We find out later. These are also terrible jerks they're marrying. But okay, Yeah. uh, Very, very crappy princes. Um, But uh, they cannot see Julie. It's sort of a one way holodeck. So she can walk around and see what's going on with father and, and with the sisters, but they can't see her. Um, and there, there's another scene later on that's interesting where Julie invites the beast to have a drink with her. Like she wants to look on his face, but he forbids it. And, uh, she's like, well, at least come have a drink with me. And so she uh, holds up a glass of wine for him to take. But when I think he reaches for it, she touches his hand. And when she touches his hand, his hand changes. It transforms from his talons or claws back into a human hand. Yeah, and this is this is key, right? This is again the literal transformative power of love, but this is also exactly what the monster voice was warning him against, right? Because now he is a bird without talons. He is a bird creature with human hands, which uh which uh, we we learn are useless for doing things like uh, you know slashing open the necks of deer that he hunts in the forest and so forth. Right. So the voice says, now the worst for you, you can live in neither world. So you are mm-hmm. ugly because you have this monster head. You will never be accepted by, by humans, uh, but you don't have the power of a monster with, and, the, and the claws. Your gentle human hands are of no use to you. And the voice goes on to say, hey, just, you know, there's one way out of this. You can do what you originally planned and kill Julie and drink her blood and then it's going to be OK. But he doesn't do it because he loves her. He confesses that he loves her. And it seems maybe she loves him, too. She thinks his hands are beautiful, at least. She can see those. But she still can't turn and see his face until one day she does. She sees his face in a mirror and then finally turns to stare at him. And uh, they, uh, you know, they have a back and forth. She, She at first says, you are frightening, but not evil. But then when she's really faced with him and sees his face in the light, I think she can't stand it. And she runs away. 
Now, this is, I think, a good time to stress that at least when I was watching this film, and I don't know if you had the same experience, Joe. Yes, we know the story. We know the fairy tale behind this. And we know that the fairy tale generally has a happy ending. There are sort of different versions of that happy ending. But watching this film, I did not feel safe that we would get to a happy ending. Right. Uh, and I think part of it is because it has one foot in the horror genre and yeah. one foot in Czech new wave cinema. And neither of those is like firm grounding for a nice happy ending necessarily. Oh, I fully expected a, a, a dark, tragic ending. Mm -hmm. So in scenes like this, it, especially as you get more into the runtime and as you lose track of, of how long you've been watching the film, it seems entirely likely that he may just kill her. Totally. That would be a, a fitting, tragic end. But instead, something interesting happens. So Julie leaves. She leaves the mansion. She returns home and she returns home to find that her sisters with all uh, the ones who are obsessed with jewels and fine clothing. Uh, now that she returns home with all of the jewels and fine clothing that she got from the beast and his manor. And the sisters love that. They're like, oh, if I'd known it would be like this, I would have gone to the monster myself. <laughs> And they're they're so impressed. They're like, let me. Can I wear your dress? Yeah. I, I don't even know if they ask permission. They're like, I'm going to wear your dress now. Yeah. And I'm going to wear Give your ring. And you know, <laughs> she's such a good sport. She's like, okay, okay. And her jewelry. But then yeah. it's hilarious when the sisters try on the gown and the jewelry. I guess they were magic. When the sisters wear them, they turn into rags and mud. <laughs> Reminiscent of uh, the gate too uh, here, with uh, granted wishes of demons turning into poop the next day. Mm. Oh, also, when we find out that the princes that the sisters are married to are just odious jerks, they're mm -hmm. like running around. They're, they're like two frat boys who are just partying with each other at the at the father's house. They're like, eh, our wives are ugly. Too bad all the wine's gone. <laughs> yeah, they're awful. And uh, yeah, sadly, we, we don't get to see them savaged by a beast. But then we see what we think is coming to a tragic end for the beast. The beast is pining for Julie, but she is gone and he is just cursed. His human hands mean he cannot hunt like he could before. All of his servants, I guess, because they don't fear him anymore, they leave him. So no one is serving him. And he sort of collapses in a bed alone in his manner to die. And then Julie, it turns out, returns to him. She comes back to him, and it seems at first that he's already dead. But then when she, she comes to his side, we finally get the transformation. He transforms into the human prince from her dream and then wakes, and we actually do get a happy ending. He, he has been transformed by love and by having the kind of bravery to surrender the uh, perhaps illusory strength that he felt as a monster. By giving that up, he, uh, he is able to live again. Yeah, and uh, this it came right down to the wire. I wasn't sure if this was going to have yeah. a happy ending until literally like the last minute or two of the, the movie because he's dying. He's on his deathbed. And the classic version of the tale is that, yes, she is going to heal him, save him with her love. And in some versions of it, like they marry each other and there's like a, a wedding ceremony. I didn't think we would get that. And we, we didn't get a, a wedding ceremony here. That would be a little bit too much for this particular film. But yeah, he transforms into a human. And at that point, I'm thinking, OK, maybe he's just dead. And we get kind of like that, the classic gothic ending to so many werewolf movies, right, where our, our werewolf uh, protagonist uh, or antagonist has died, but at least becomes human in his death. But we don't get that because, again, it's clear that as the beast transforms back into his human form, he looks up, he is alive, he draws breath, 
And then we transition back to that dream sequence of the prince carrying Julie through these various doors, this kind of funhouse mirror dream effect. Um, uh, so it's, uh, yeah, we, we get our happy ending. It's not too on the nose. Uh, it, it, it feels in keeping with the rest of the picture. We, it's dreamlike, it's otherworldly, uh, but it is the culmination of love's transformation. Yes, after everything we've been through and all the uh, all the gloom and all the terror and the boiling mud and the homunculuses in the in the chandelier and everything, we finally do get a really sweet ending. Yeah, it reminded me of a, a great quote that I've always admired from C.S. Lewis from uh, The Four Loves, uh, where Lewis wrote, quote, To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. That's a great connection. I mean, I think that is pretty much exactly the, the spirit of the film. Yeah. And hey, we're coming up on Valentine's Day. This is a good Valentine's Day viewing. <laughs> like people should seriously, people should should seek this out. This is a a, a romantic film. I actually agree. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, as as long as you want your romantic film to have a taloned uh, slime vulture. Yes, and you need to make sure that you're not having to insist early on in the film. No, I'm not making you watch a horror film. This is not a horror film. <laughs> this is, trust me, this is a fairy tale. It's a beautiful story about romance. Uh, because again, the, the, it starts off a bit dark and bloody before the fairy tale really kicks in. Well, not too bloody. I take that back. It's not, this is not a blood fest, but there is that, uh, that moment of, uh, of, of the, the, the young woman being ripped into by the, the beast. It's not a great movie to watch if you're about to deliver a caravan full of uh, lace from Brussels and, and fine china. Right. Yeah. That's just going to stress you out. <laughs> Is that one of the categories on Does the Dog Die? Does it, does it contain <laughs> a scene in which a, a valuable caravan is destroyed um, in transit? Should be. Okay. Does that do it for, for today? Yeah, that, I think that'll that'll wrap it up. Uh, again, as we mentioned a number of Beauty and the Beast films. Um, I, I think that 1946 films definitely worth seeking out. A number of the other ones, though, I think you can safely miss, especially um, uh, the two I mentioned that were not based directly on the Beauty and the Beast story. Give those a miss. Watch this movie instead. Uh, check out 1978's Beauty and the Beast. Uh, again, you can find different different versions of it out there. But I think, sadly, as of this recording, it's not available for streaming in the U.S., or paid digital rental or purchase in the U.S. But these things change, so keep an eye out for it. If you want to see the uh, rest of the movies that we've covered on Weird House Cinema, well, you can go to a couple of places to do that. I blog about these films at samutamusic.com. But if you use Letterboxd, uh, which is a great uh, website where you can chronicle films and share your reviews, read other people's reviews. It's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. Look us up. We have a an account there. Title, uh, our account name is Weird House. We have a list there of all the films that we've covered so far, uh, with this being the most recent one. A reminder that Weird House Cinema is just the Friday episode uh, that we put in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We do this on Friday though on mondays we do listener mail and on wednesdays we do a short form artifact or monster fact uh, but yeah right in we'd love to hear from you and we we cover weird house cinema listener mail on that listener mail episode 
Huge thanks to our audio producer, JJ Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.